0: Hello and welcome to the Eurowhat, episode number 200 for the week of July 3rd, 2023. We are a pair of Americans trying to make sense of the Eurovision Song Contest. I'm Ben Smith, and this is my co-host, Mike McComb. Hey, Mike. Hello. In this episode, we'll be sharing our presentation from the 2023 pop conference entitled Let's Tech Right at My Home, Eurovision, The Pandemic, and Learning to Open Up Again. 200, Mike. We have made 200 of these things. Woo! Pew, pew, pew. When did, when, <laughs> when did this happen? How did this happen? I mean, well, I know how this happened. We've been talking to a microphone for five years. I think back to when
1: we first started this project. and am just like, oh, we'll see if we get through this initial season and then take it from there this is wild to think that we've dedicated ourselves to this so i I guess we're in for the long haul is what i'm saying we've also been facebook friends
0: for 10 years by the way oh wow okay (laughs) yeah yeah it sent me it sent me a photo from our first geek i was like "Aww, (laughs) aww." I'm glad that we had a big thing that we did that just slots in nicely as, okay, yes, this is what we should do for the episode that ends in two zeros. Yeah, the timing
1: for it was perfect. We thought about trying to make this as close to a live show as possible, but... When it got to the actual conference, it's just like, uh, kind of panicking. Don't want to have to add this layer to it.
0: (laughs) I didn't want the extra thing to think about in the back of my brain of like, is the audio that we're recording here even good? Right.
1: I don't know if you had this fear in the back of your mind, but... What if nobody comes to our talk?
0: What if all of the jokes I've written do not work at all? What if people show up and just like, our talk is bad? What if we have vastly, vastly misunderstood what this event is?
1: That was not the case. Pop conference was a fantastic time. I guess we should talk a little bit about what PopCon is, because I
0: don't think we actually got into that on the show. Basically, the PopConference is all sorts of music writers and academics and etc. It's basically a conference, but for people who write about music. There's a theme every year. We found out about the theme last fall. Ned Raggett, who has been on the show many times, had put PopCon on my radar. So like when I saw that the theme for this year's conference was around club culture, nightlife, and what all that looks like after the pandemic, I was like, we can tell a story here. Like this, this, This affects us. The whole community aspect of enjoying
1: music. It was a fantastic conference. Got to see a lot of different interpretations on that theme and just find out a whole bunch of really interesting things that academics are working on, writers are writing about, and... I keep on wanting to say it was kind of a groovy weekend. Like It was just like really chill, a lot of fun, great panels. Uh, yeah, yeah, it, it was f- fantastic.
0: Yeah, I was delighted to go from session to session and see how people's brains thought about this theme and the, the different ways that that could be interpreted.
1: And just the kind of different approaches to it. Because, I mean, there's a difference between an academic approach to a subject and the fandom approach to it and a journalistic approach to it. Seeing all of those types of ways of talking about the same topic and coming together and really opening up the subject areas. It's like, oh, this is this is fun. So
2: <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah,
0: and like each panel was generally about three to four presenters doing the equivalent of like maybe seven to nine pages. So like 20 to 25 minutes were the presentation. And then we somehow got billed as a roundtable, which was very funny to me because the only other person on that roundtable besides myself was you, the person I talk to about this stuff all the time. So it was going to be less of a point-counterpoint and more of a point-other point. I think the way that it was described was we kind of broke the format, but in a good way. When we were conceptualizing this, I was thinking of it in terms of things like what Chris Malanfi does on Hit Parade, when he will take a moment on chart history and enlarge it to like an hour's worth of interesting discussion. And then was just delighted that we got to meet Chris Malanfi and have him come to our talk.
1: Yeah, that was really cool, and we did have like a pretty good turnout. I mean, it was it was a very rainy Sunday morning in New York, so. All things considered, we filled the house. it was like a couple dozen people, but
0: yeah, that was great. so I was pleased with our turnout i was I was like yes this is this is the level of audience I want coming to see our shenanigans on a Sunday morning,
1: and also knowing that not everybody was going to be able to make it, particularly people who listen to this show and may not be able to hop over to New York for a weekend, so yeah, that's why we wanted to record our talk and share it with everybody because. It was a lot of fun researching it. It, it was a lot to research it. So, uh, yeah, want to make sure
0: everybody gets to enjoy it. It involves very recent history, which is really weird to, A, look into, because I talk all the time about how looking at stuff from 10 years ago gives me immense psychic damage from just looking at styling choices. So to go, like, three years back. And also, it's just really weird having a recorded archive of yourself yeah yeah there there
1: was a lot about this where like it kind of made sense as our 200th episode because this is a little bit like a greatest hits collection it's just a shame that a lot of our greatest hits happened during the pandemic <laughs> in the so... midst of a
0: pandemic <laughs> Giving that presentation, at least for me, was just sort of like a moment of being able to take a step back and see how the various work we have done over the last five years had sort of like converged at that point.
1: In the moment, you're able to remember things week to week, but actually looking back on everything that was going on, not just what we were doing, but what the entire fandom was doing. And we'll get into that as we go through this episode. But it's like, oh, wow, there really was a lot going on. And yeah, just kind of how it is
0: been compartmentalized at least in my brain to do a lot of that but then also i've literally been thinking in the back of my head for like probably close to the last decade about streaming technology and eurovision and it felt really relevant to this as well so it was really nice to finally get a bunch of that stuff on paper and read a bunch of papers that i now know how to read about the actual technology behind that and try and and pull in no this is why eurovision's global reach is where it is at now before we get going just some thank yous so thank you to ned for pushing us to submit and consulting when i was like okay but is this a thing would this work i sent our submission going well what's the worst that can happen and the only two things i could think of were well either they say no to us which is fine alternately they say yes to us and then we have to write a presentation and i'm so glad we got to write this presentation i am too yes
1: uh we also want to thank our patreon supporters that really helped in making this event possible, making this episode possible, and really making the show possible. The contributions help, and we're really, really happy to put on this show for everybody. It's been a fantastic five years. Hopefully, five more fantastic years are ahead of us.
0: Yes. Yeah. Thank you for helping us get to 200. We hope to produce many more. Yes. And and really, all of our listeners, regardless of
1: your Patreon status, and all of our guests, and- Everything that has led up to episode 200. We've learned so much on this journey so far. We've
0: had so many laughs, which uh, is what I'm in the mood for. So, (laughs) Um, Mike, I had a friend tell me last week who has been aware that I have the podcast tell me that they were listening to us. But then told me that because they are the way they are, they had to be listening to us from the beginning. And so they, they're currently in 2018. I'm like, why? Why are you doing that? Oh, we, we've no. made some... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm just like, oh, you're going to go on a journey as we learn how to make audio content in real time.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Like, there's always the temptation to hide those early episodes. Like, no, no, no. Gotta show growth. Yes. And we still have a lot more room to grow. Yeah. Should we get into the meat of this episode? Yeah, let's do it. All right.
0: In 2020, the Eurovision Song Contest was canceled for the first time in 65 years. Today, we're going to examine how the Eurofandom coped with the cancellation, how Eurovision as an organization maintained fan engagement, and how the Song Contest adapted so that live music could be experienced again. Let's start off with the Cliff's Notes version of what the Eurovision Song Contest is.
2: What
1: is Eurovision? The Eurovision Song Contest emerged out of post-World War II Europe as a means to provide light entertainment programming while also testing out international communication and broadcasting capabilities. In the 1950s, Marcel Besançon, the director of the European Broadcasting Union, or EBU, suggested copying the format of Italy's San Remo Festival to create a friendly competition between EBU members while testing the ability to broadcast live music. The first contest was held in 1956 and has grown substantially since then. Each participating nation sends a song and a performer. The song can be no longer than three minutes, and it has to be performed live. Live originally meant while accompanied by an orchestra. Today, the singing is still live, but accompaniment is handled by backing tracks, even if there are instruments on stage. Performers need to be at least 16 years of age, and no more than six people can be on stage during a performance. Songs cannot be explicitly political and need to adhere to broadcast content standards. No swearing and no SponCon for brands.
0: The 1956 contest had seven participating nations. Membership has expanded through the decades, including a few members you may not think of as European nations. Israel has participated since 1973. They're a member of the European Broadcasting Union and fall within the TV and radio waves of a region known as the European Broadcasting Area. The northern reaches of Africa also fall in the European Broadcasting Area, with Morocco competing once in 1980. The fall of the USSR and the breakup of Yugoslavia in the 90s meant that the number of nations that wanted to participate ballooned. To keep the show at a reasonable running time and to allow more participation across Europe, a relegation system was introduced in 1994, where each year's low-ranking nations would sit out the following year's competition. Midweek semifinals were introduced to the contest in the mid-2000s to accommodate more participants and eventually get rid of relegation, with the grand final held on a Saturday in May, having a field of 24-27 to 27 competitors. The 2011 and 2018 contests each featured 43 countries, the largest rosters to date. The most recent addition to the participant lineup is Australia. They've broadcast the contest since the early 1980s and were initially invited to participate for a one-off appearance in 2015. They've participated in every contest since.
1: The winner of each year's contest is determined by two sets of points, a jury score and a televote. A country is not allowed to give itself points in either category. Each nation sends a jury of five music industry professionals who are expected to evaluate the songs against specific criteria to provide one half of the scores. During the grand final, a representative from each country is asked to present points for the jury's top 10 songs and announce which country received the top score of 12 points. Televoting within each country makes up the other half of the scores. Televoting began in the late 1990s, with the rise of phone networks stable enough to support call-in and SMS voting. The contest has gone back and forth in terms of how much power the Televote has. For example, in 2023, the semifinal scores were determined entirely by Televote instead of a mix of Televote and jury scores. By the end of the grand final broadcast, all the points are tabulated, a winner is declared, and the whole process starts again. The winning country will have the opportunity to host the following year's contest. To get a sense of the scale of how many people watch Eurovision, the most-watched Super Bowl had 114 million viewers in 2015. The 2023 Eurovision Song Contest had 162
0: million viewers across the three live shows. A Big Tent a thing we say a lot on this podcast is that Eurovision is a big tent and there are several different levels of Eurovision fandom. You have people who roll in for the grand final on Saturday and maybe the semifinal their country is participating in. This would be most of the audience or normies.
1: Then you have the people who are invested for the entire Eurovision fortnight, watching the rehearsal footage released on social media, both semifinals
0: and the grand final. They might follow fan blogs or listen to podcasts. If you're this sort of fan and you have nations you like, maybe you start tracking their national finals since most of those are now easily streamable. For those of us in the US, those shows happen at prime laundry folding hours on Saturdays.
1: Then you start live tweeting these shows and find community with other fans. You might attend pre-parties, host watch parties, or even go to the host city and get tickets for the event.
0: If you're particularly deranged, you start blogging about the contest with one of the other Americans you find tweeting about the contest, and eventually the two of you pivot that into a podcast where you drag guests kicking and screaming into Eurofandom. Howdy! Hello! It us. There is room in the tent for you two at whatever level you want to check this out.
2: An interlude about digital streaming technology.
0: Part of what's made going from a casual viewer to a podcaster about Eurovision easier is the way streaming technology itself has improved in the last 15 years. So let's take a quick walk through accessing and streaming the Eurovision Song Contest. Even though the music within Eurovision is sometimes seen as behind the times, the show itself is often on the cutting edge of technology. Thousands of meters of LED screens were being created for the Eurovision stages before they became de rigueur for every award show and singing competition. The final of the 2006 edition of the contest was simultaneously filmed in both standard and high definition as a way of testing out HD cameras. The EBU was also looking into the ability to stream the contest via the internet. Streaming video runs into one major issue, bandwidth. Broadcasting a live event to millions of people means that a dedicated stream of data needs to be sent to each viewer. For something like Eurovision, that's a lot of data! One solution to this is multicasting. The main data stream is sent to many local servers that then rebroadcast that content to local users. In the early 2000s, most IP routers didn't support this and had no financial incentive to introduce this in a way that would work for an event at the scale of Eurovision. Enter a Danish company called OctoShape. After a test with the 2006 contest, the EBU began offering a commentary-free stream of the contest in 2007 via its website using a plugin called OctoShape. OctoShape used peer-to-peer technology to allow for the contest to be gridcast. Grid technology was already in use by tools like BitTorrent and Kazaa for file sharing, but instead of downloading a virus to your family's computer, that same technology could be used to shoulder the load of live streaming in a way that used idle bandwidth on the user side to give everyone a better quality stream. I started watching the contest in 2008, and OctoShape wasn't perfect. You definitely ran into some potato-quality moments when the show was live while you were an ocean away from the action. As a college student at the time, I also had to make sure I was not exceeding personal bandwidth limits that would throttle my internet access. It's still worth noting how ahead of the game this was for streaming technology. YouTube was still fairly early in its development at this point, and would also tap into P2P networks for its own streaming abilities. Netflix would not start streaming video for a few more years, initially mailing users a disk in April 2010 to access the streamer's early catalog from Nintendo Wii's or other gaming systems. That technology improved in the mid-2010s, with the contest switching over from hosting the stream on its own site to YouTube, where everybody was already watching online video. In the US, the cable network logo picked up the broadcast rights for the contest in 2016, which led to the contest getting geo-blocked on YouTube for US viewers. This meant that if your cable package didn't have logo, which was a very likely scenario, you either needed to know how to make your computer think it was in a different country for a few hours, or you needed to know which European TV networks were streaming their own feeds of the contest. Logo's rights lapsed after the 2018 contest. Netflix announced in July 2019 that it had acquired the rights for the 2019 semifinals and final, making them available for on-demand streaming in the United States. Sure, it was two months after the contest had aired, but it meant that rewatching that year's contest was easier. Netflix would also have rights to the 2020 contest, which opened up a way for viewers to get familiar with Eurovision before a Will Ferrell movie about the contest would drop that same year.
2: It's a normal year at Eurovision, and everything is fine, and we're definitely not about to be rocked by a global pandemic that will shut everything down nine months from now.
1: Our main story begins with the grand final of the 64th Eurovision Song Contest, which took place in Tel Aviv, Israel, on May 18th, 2019. Duncan Lawrence, representing the Netherlands with the song Arcade, won the contest, giving his country the right to host the competition in 2020. Preparations begin the very next day, with cities all over the Netherlands expressing interest in hosting. Bidding for Eurovision is like bidding for any sort of major event. Cities indicate their interest and put together bid books to showcase why they'd be the perfect host through a combination of available venues, general vibe, and tax breaks. For the 2020 ESC, nine cities gave their intention to bid, with five submitting bid books for consideration. The options were narrowed down to Rotterdam and Maastricht, with Rotterdam ultimately chosen on August 30th. The next detail to be revealed by the Dutch delegation
0: would be the contest's slogan, a theme for the year to come. Eurovision slogans tend to fall into some general categories. There's inspirational greeting card for a cousin you don't know that well's graduation. Dare to dream. Share the moment. We would like to promote tourism in our general metropolitan area. Magical rendezvous. A modern fairy tale. All aboard! Despite what you may have heard, we are not a cult. We are one. Hashtag join us. And the classic chestnut. A major music event is taking place this weekend. Expect delays. Feel the rhythm, confluence of sound, the sound of beauty. 2020's addition to this pantheon launched with a video at the end of October 2019, with a montage of people and archive footage ending with an overhead view of the Erasmus Bridge, with overlay text reading, Open up. This slogan strongly implied
1: an open-ended way to acknowledge an idea of togetherness, though it felt a little cheekier than previous slogans. Maybe it's just Dutch directness. The digital agency Clever Fromge was hired to design the visual identity of the 2020 contest. Using some clever data visualization, the colors of each participating nation's flag are positioned in a ring chronologically based on when that nation first competed at Eurovision. The flat design and bright colors which kind of looked like a rainbow asterisk, could be applied in lots of fun ways on metro trains, banners, and merchandise for fans. While marketing follows its own timeline, the Eurovision Song Contest follows a schedule similar to a traditional television season. After September 1st, any song released is eligible for the following year's contest. Each country has full control over how they select their entry. Some nations go fully internal, selecting both the artist and their song. Those eager to get started may announce their artist even before September 1st, or have a selection process in the same calendar year as the most recent contest. For the most part, the selection season gets fully underway in January. Some nations might select an artist and hold a public final where the home audience votes to select between a few songs for that artist. On the flip side, becoming the representative could be a part of the prize package for an existing series, like The Voice or The X Factor, with the song decided on later. Other processes are fully public, with some type of TV program to select the artist and song. These include one-off TV specials like Denmark's Melody Grand Prix and Finland's UMK, week-long festivals like Italy's San Remo, or multi-week series like Sweden's Melodifestivalen and Lithuania's Pabandam Whatever method is used, all songs and artists need to be submitted to the EBU by mid-March, along with a music video and staging plans for the contest. In late January, the Eurovision host nation will hold a drawing to allocate which countries will compete in each semifinal. The host country and a group of major financial contributors known as the Big Five France, Germany, Italy, Spain, and the United Kingdom automatically qualify for the grand final, but participate in the voting for their assigned semifinal.
0: The running order for the semifinals is determined and released by the show's producers at the end of March. This used to be a fully random draw until 2013, but this change allows producers to build a better playlist flow across the show and make sure there's some space between load and intensive stagings. April is promo time for the selected entries. Fan groups in Amsterdam, London, Madrid, and other cities hold pre-party concerts where competing acts and Eurovision alumni will play their songs live and do local fan press. In May, it's showtime. One week of rehearsals takes place in the host venue alongside press interviews and other events in the host city. This is followed by a second week when the semifinals and grand final take place. Once the contest ends, the participants sign each other's yearbooks and go home to have a great summer while the EBU reference group gets ready for the next year's incoming class. Cities in the new host nation bid to host the next contest. Rule changes in any residual drama in voting is discussed, and everything starts up again in September.
1: National final season for 2020 began in late December 2019 with Albania's national music festival, Festivale i Kungus. Although Albania hasn't really been a competitive player during its two decades of participation at Eurovision, the festival receives outsized attention from the fandom, because it is usually the only active process happening in December. However, the purpose of the festival isn't to be a Eurovision selection method. That just happens to be part of the prize package. This often results in the festival jury selecting a song that should win an Albanian music competition, with no consideration as to how it might do at Eurovision. This often riles up the fandom, providing a lovely amuse-bouche of what the next few months of selection season has in store. For example... The jury for FIK in December 2019 included three international jurors with Eurovision bona fides and two experts from Albanian music circles. This was the first time that international jurors had been part of Albania's process. One of the entries, Meitana by Elvana Gyata, is what the Eurovision community affectionately refers to as an ethnobanger, a pop track that incorporates the language and cultural elements of the song's country of origin while getting your booty shaking. The international jurors gave this entry top marks as it would have slotted in quite nicely in any Eurovision, the Albanian jurors did not score this entry well, as is often the case with up-tempo pop songs in FIK. Metana ultimately finished in second, behind Arielina Era's plaintive ballad "Shy." True heads would not be surprised by this outcome, but drama is drama. For the remaining forty countries participating, 2020 had a mostly normal selection season. Lithuania overhauled its selection format. Exercising a bit more deliberation in determining what songs would compete. In previous years, Lithuania's process would initially have a schedule spanning six or eight weeks, then add more entries out of the blue, including additional songs from contestants that were already competing. One contestant in 2019 asked viewers not to vote for one of her songs because she wanted to go to the national final with a different song she submitted later in the process. The 2020 overhaul streamlined the selection into a six week process with an unexpectedly excellent crop of candidates. This included eventual winners The Roop and their song On Fire, a track that was on the list of potential favorites that could give Lithuania its first Eurovision win.
0: Other entries that were part of the potential winners' conversation included Diodato, who won Italy's prestigious Festival di Sanremo with his song Fireu The Mamas, the backing group behind Sweden's 2019 entry Too Late for Love, who stepped to the front of the stage and won Melody Festivalin with their song Move. Russia, who were still allowed to participate at this time, internally selected the band Little Big and their song Uno. The video has since become the most watched video on Eurovision's YouTube channel, at least partially due to that group's previous meme culture friendly videos like Skibidi. However, there was one entry that was gaining attention from non Eurovision spaces in an unusual way. On Valentine's Day, ahead of its appearance in Iceland's Song of the Captain's semi final, Dothi Freyr released his entry Think About Things. Eurovision focused journalists like The Independent's Rob Holly tweeted about the song's catchy video. Rylan Clark, a presenter who is part of the BBC's Eurovision commentary team, added that the song could do well in May's contest. On February 19th, Think About Things broke free of the Eurovision bubble. Russell Crowe tweeted, Song, with a link to an article about the video on SongFestivalNews.nl. This raised several questions. Why is the guy from Gladiator tweeting about this song? Why is Russell Crowe? linking to a Dutch Eurovision fansite's post about the video instead of linking to YouTube. Is Russell Crowe a Eurofan? All of this happened before Think About Things won Song of the Captain at the end of February. As all these processes were happening, COVID
1: continued its creep. Italy's San Remo Festival took place the first week of February. By the end of that month, the country had become an epicenter for the virus and entered lockdown. Rotterdam continued to plan for the contest— Announcing on March 6th that a third wave of tickets should be available by the end of March. That same day, Denmark announced that its national final, set to take place in a brand new venue, would not have an audience due to limitations on gatherings of 1,000 or more people. Dansk Melody Grand Prix was the only televised final to make such a drastic change. That final took place on the last weekend of the selection season, alongside Sweden, Finland, and Portugal.
0: In a rare occurrence for our show, we happen to be watching these finals together in the same room, instead of from our respective apartments. I bring up that last pre-COVID trip where we ended up watching the finals a lot when talking to others about the pre-pandemic before times. Waiting for my flight to Chicago, I distinctly remember texting my then-girlfriend, People are wearing masks in the airport! seems like a bit much. In hindsight, it's small moments like that and seeing a completely empty Danish arena for the 2020 Dansk Melody Grand Prix, where I began to process the seriousness of what was coming in the back of my mind. Listening to the episodes of our show from that time, it's like the beginning of a horror movie, where you see the looming threat slowly getting closer and closer as more and more COVID-related items begin to come across our news desk. The dominoes started falling faster.
1: All countries needed to have their entries submitted to the EBU in time for the head of delegations meeting in Rotterdam on Monday, March 9th. Normally, this is a planning meeting for all participating countries to visit venues, discuss logistics, and raise concerns. Several delegates decided not to attend in person, some by choice, others because their country instituted travel restrictions. For the EBU cohort, an employee tested positive for COVID, which meant the
0: whole team could not leave Geneva. Participating artists are canceling appearances, the various fan pre-parties are postponing or canceling, and no one wants to or can travel. Stories of cruise ships becoming floating COVID wards are all over the news, which makes the announcement on March 11th that the Eurovision opening ceremony would be held at a cruise terminal particularly yikesy. On March 13th,
1: a national emergency was declared in the U.S., as was the travel ban for people coming in from Europe. More countries, regions, and cities are instituting limitations on group sizes
0: and effectively closing up shop for the foreseeable future. On March 17th, an emergency meeting was held by the Eurovision Reference Group, the governing body for the Eurovision Song Contest. Executive Supervisor Jano ola released this video on March 18th.
2: It is with great regret we have to announce the cancellation of the Eurovision Song Contest 2020 in Rotterdam. The escalating spread of the coronavirus throughout Europe and the restrictions put in place by many governments and the Dutch authorities makes it impossible for us to host a live event as planned. I would like to thank everyone who has been involved in the process of staging a great Eurovision Song Contest this year. Unfortunately, that was not possible due to factors beyond our control. But I can promise you the Eurovision Song Contest will come back stronger than ever. One thing that the absence of a contest
1: in 2020 wouldn't delay, a changing of the guard at the EBU. Jan-Ola Sand, who had been executive supervisor since 2011, had planned to step down from his post after the 2020 contest. Without fanfare, Mr. Sand handed the reins of Eurovision over to his successor, Martin Oosterdahl. In retrospect, a giant rainbow asterisk may have been too on the nose as a logo.
2: Hashtag Eurovision again.
0: Following the cancellation, a few of the entries continued to make noise globally. Fai literally means make noise, and that sentiment resonated with Italians quarantined at home, singing the song from their balconies as they clapped for healthcare workers. In an interview with Vanity Fair Italia, Diodato remarked that he never imagined that the song would turn into a cry of liberation, and that this manifestation of humanity reminded him of the function of music. By the end of March, Think About Things got a second wind when TikToker Garrett Williams used the song in a dance video on day 17 of quarantine. Because people are bored at home and TikTok is TikTok, others start doing the same sort of dance Garrett did to the song, starting a social media trend featuring Pink, James Corden, and Jennifer Garner, who posted a video of herself doing laundry and drinking wine while nominally participating in the challenge. By the end of May, Think About Things had 17 million views on YouTube, 75 million streams on Spotify, and has been featured in over 150,000 videos on TikTok.
1: Does anybody fancy watching an old Eurovision in synchronization? Shortly after the cancellation of the contest was announced, journalist Rob Holly tweeted out his idea for a Twitter watch along. Plans for a small group watch along quickly fell apart when too many people indicated their interest in streaming the 2013 contest together. What started as one contest rewatch quickly became another and another on a weekly basis, all branded with the hashtag Eurovision again. After a few weeks, the EBU gave the unofficial rewatches their blessing and offered to help. The EBU worked with broadcasters to remaster copies of
0: archive shows to sate hungry Eurofans' appetites as they live-tweeted the shows they loved. Eurovision again opened up decades' worth of past contests to an entirely new generation of viewers. Future airings opened with comments from historian Catherine Baker to set the contest in its proper global context. The fandom eagerly gave their favorite artists the flowers they may not have received during their original performances in very online fashion. fan cams for former contest supervisor, Mr. Frank Neff, calls of Come Back Yugoslavia across Twitter, and the word "Alora" entering the daily lexicon outside of Italy. Acts like Iceland's Paul Oskar and Yugoslavia's Tai Chi were able to respond to new waves of fan appreciation, sending their thanks by sharing videos with the Eurovision Again Twitter account.
1: Besides being a way for the fandom to stay connected, Eurovision Again acted as a real force for good. Almost £25,000 was raised for LGBTQ-plus-focused organizations the Terence Higgins Trust, Stonewall UK, and Mermaids, a UK trans youth charity. One last piece of Eurovision Again loveliness. Original organizer Rob Holly is now the head of content at the EBU for the Eurovision Song Contest. If you were a Eurofan disappointed that Eurovision 2020 wouldn't have a winner, you could join one of several fan-led efforts to argue over who would have finished in first place. We even got in on the fun as part of Eurostream, an effort organized by multiple fan sites and podcasts from Europe, Australia, and the US, in an attempt to recreate the contest experience. We hosted the running order draw for the second semifinal of the Eurostream from our apartments, Once again, I would like to apologize for misgendering Switzerland with my high school French.
0: Think about things as a popular winner amongst these fan contests, but it wasn't a uniform winner. Networks around the EBU all had a Eurovision-sized hole to fill in their schedules. Some broadcasters produced their own voting-based program to declare a winner. Dati Freer often came out on top, winning Austria's Der kleine Song Contest, Sweden's 12 points, as well as alternate programs from Australia and Finland. But it wasn't a clean sweep! Lithuania's The Roop won Eurovision Song Contest 2020, das Deutsche Finale, an alternate final held on German television. We'll likely be arguing about who would have stood atop the podium at Rotterdam 2020 until the heat death of the universe.
1: The official Eurovision YouTube channel also provided its own programming. On April 3rd, the first installment of Home Concerts debuted. The first episode featured a few alumni performing their Eurovision songs and covers from living rooms, in-house studios, or wherever they could set up a camera. Soon the Friday episode drops became another opportunity for Euro fans to sync up over social media and enjoy the music, and see what different apartments and houses look like. What started as a 30-minute show the first week grew into a full-on concert by week six. In May, during what was supposed to be Eurovision week, the semifinals were replaced with specials where the running order the producers had devised was announced. The specials also included messages of thanks delivered to the participants. The grand final was replaced with a special named Europe Shine a Light, the title playing on Katrina and the Wave's 1997 winning entry Love Shine a Light. This special also featured alumni performances, but the showstopper was Italy's Diodato singing Fai Rumore in the center of a completely empty Arena di Verona. Conf- While this was another event that your fans could watch with each other through social media, the incredibly somber tone adopted by the special put a damper on the overall experience. However, the special included an announcement confirming that Rotterdam would be hosting the contest
0: when it comes back in 2021. Back for good. With Rotterdam confirmed as host, a number of the important logistics were able to roll over. The Rotterdam Ahoy Arena would continue to be the host venue, since there weren't any scheduling conflicts that had popped up in the meantime. The proposed stage design could still be used, though the pit area, which was the fan zone, would need to be reconsidered. The slogan Open Up could also be reused, though the meaning behind it has completely transformed. The logo for the contest would change, with the design team at Clever Franca describing it as follows. The new logo of Eurovision 2021 symbolizes togetherness and connection. Using a custom-developed software, we renewed last year's logo by emphasizing the geographical location of participating countries. The semifinal assignments from 2020 would carry over, eliminating the need for an allocation event to plan and mitigate. The running order would be reworked based on the new slate of entries, as songs submitted for 2020 would no longer be eligible.
1: While the cosmetic aspects of putting on Eurovision were relatively easy to resolve, figuring out how to stage the actual contest would require significantly more planning. Here's the thing contingency planning has historically not been a strong skill of the EBU. At the very first contest in 1956, the winner was determined by a jury formed with members from the participating countries. The rule of not voting for your own country had not been established. Switzerland, who was hosting the contest, won! The actual jury deliberations and scores have never been released to the public. Which country hosts the competition was originally going to be on a rotation basis, with the BBC scheduled to host in 1958. However, an artist's union strike prevented the UK from even participating, so hosting duties went to the previous year's winner, the Netherlands. This established the tradition of the winner
0: hosting the following year. In 1969, 16 countries participated, with each member of each nation's 10-person jury casting a vote for their favorite song. After all 160 points were distributed, there was a four-way tie for first place. There was no tiebreak mechanism in the rulebook. Everyone was mad, and several countries boycotted the 1970 contest. Israel won the 1978 Eurovision Song Contest and hosted the 1979 edition. Israel also won the 1979 contest and could not take on the financial burden of hosting again. This situation was not unheard of, and typically the country that finished second would be offered the opportunity to host. However, 1979's runner-up, Spain, also said no thanks. After much scrambling, the Netherlands stepped in to host, dusting off all the props and storage from when they hosted in 1976. Because of the last-minute nature of pulling the contest together, the event ended up being scheduled on Israel's Memorial Day, which meant that the defending champion couldn't participate. Not a good look.
1: Returning to 2020... As the prospect of canceling the contest loomed, there was speculation on what a plan B could look like. Natalia Gorsak, the director general of Slovenia's national broadcaster, said in an interview that one possible plan would be for each country to host their entry's performance in a studio, with the main show in Rotterdam jumping from live feed to live feed. Even if COVID protocols allowed for that many people in a confined space such as a TV studio, the technical feasibility of all the jumps required while trying to make a show that is both watchable and entertaining, would probably not be feasible. Predicting what protocols in public health would be like in May 2021 would have been equally infeasible, which meant that there needed to be a plan to account for multiple scenarios. In the summer of 2020, the new executive supervisor for the contest, Martin Oosterdahl, announced changes entitled
0: Eurovision Back for Good with three new policies. First, a major rule change was made regarding backing vocals. Previously, all vocals were required to be performed live with a maximum of six people on stage, including untelevised backing singers. Under the updated rules, the six-person maximum was still in place, but pre-recorded vocals could be included in a song's backing track so long as the main vocals were still performed live. This means vocal effects could now be part of the presentation, a Six Feast group could have additional backing vocals in the mix, and fewer people would be required to travel to the contest if COVID protocols remained in place.
1: Second, each entry would record a live-to-tape performance to be used in case a delegation is unable to travel. This performance has to follow specific guidelines so as not to give any country with additional resources an advantage. For countries that held the national final, the recording could be an additional run-through of the performance before striking the set. Another option? Bulgaria converted a hockey arena into a stage and invited other delegations to use facility to help mitigate costs for countries with tighter budgets. Once in Rotterdam, if an act is unable to perform live but has had a rehearsal on the Eurovision stage, the video of the most recent rehearsal performance would be used as backup.
0: Lastly, four scenarios were introduced as a means of determining how the contest would be conducted. Scenario A, Eurovision is normal, 100% audience capacity, all delegations in the host city without mitigation protocols in play. Scenario B, Eurovision with some mitigations, masking, social distancing, reduced audience sizes, but with the goal that all performances would be live in the arena. Scenario C had further reduced audience capacity, delegations that cannot travel using their live-to-tape performances, but the show would still be as live as possible. And then there was Scenario D. No audience, all performances live-to-tape, the host broadcaster will produce the core show. Basically the Euroversion version of that one episode of the Kelly Clarkson show where each individual screen of a person was instructed to vibe out to Vin Diesel's new Tropical House single. All of these changes were announced by mid-September 2020, giving the participating countries six months to fully figure out what their entries would be for 2021.
2: Eurovision Song
1: Contest – The Legend of Fire Saga Netflix was in an awkward position. They had picked up the Eurovision Song Contest in mid-2019 as a way of building hype for the Will Ferrell comedy Eurovision Song Contest – The Legend of Fire Saga, scheduled to debut in May 2020 alongside that year's contest. When the cancellation happened in March, it left the streamer without a piece of seemingly crucial promo for the movie. Release of the film was delayed, and the 2019 contest was removed from the Netflix library on May 18, 2020, with no further information about future coverage provided. The movie was eventually released on June 26 to mixed reviews. The music received praise, Rachel McAdams and Dan Stevens were delightful, but the comedy had several flat stretches. Even with the mixed reception, the unusual circumstances around movies released during the pandemic left just enough room for Fire Saga to sneak into the running for a few big
0: awards in 2021. Amid a field that included songs from Her, Leslie Odom Jr., and a collaboration between future Eurovision host Laura Pausini and the ever-nominated Diane Warren, the film's Husavik, My Hometown, rightly got nominated for Best Original Song at the 93rd Academy Awards. Swedish singer Molly Sandin performed the song live from Husavik, Iceland during the Oscars red carpet. Lukewarmest of takes, it should've won. The Hugo Awards, a major accolade for science fiction and fantasy, nominated the film for Best Long-Form Dramatic Presentation in its 2021 awards. Authors like Sean and McGuire recognized the film's content as having fantastical elements, and a dearth of other larger sci-fi films enabled the movie to make the list of nominations. Fire Saga ultimately lost Netflix's The Old Guard, but it also beat out the likes of Christopher Nolan's Tenet in the voting.
2: Televising COVID
0: While many aspects of the 2020 contest were rolling over into 2021, the actual entries competing would be changing. Everyone would need to submit new songs, but the artists were not necessarily coming back. Five scenarios emerged.
1: Internal reselections. 24 countries decided to stick with the act that was selected for 2020. In some cases, this meant the public was cut out of the process when they would normally be involved. In other cases, such as Israel and Spain, multiple songs were presented and the public got to vote for their preferred entry. Here is a clip of one of the songs that was up for consideration in Israel. As is sometimes the case, what the artist wants and what the public wants don't always align. In this case, the public chose the less blunt Set Me Free as Eden Aline's entry. There were also a couple lineup changes within acts. Belgium's Hoover Phonic fired their lead singer and replaced her with a previous band member for an upcoming reunion tour, while San Marino's singer, Sanit, announced that her new entry, Adrenalina, would feature guest artist Flo Rida? Parting Ways. The artists representing Germany, France, Poland, Cyprus, and Russia either declined or did not receive invitations to return for 2021. As you may recall from earlier, Little Big's video was overwhelmingly popular. They claimed at Russia's national final that they did not want to have to compete against themselves along with competing at Eurovision, thus withdrew
0: from consideration. Awkward. For many countries, the mechanism used to select their Eurovision participant is intertwined with national song festivals and competitions. Eurovision is based on Italy's San Remo Festival, while Albania's Festivale i Cungis predates their participation in the contest by decades. If the artist were to roll over, that might mean skipping a piece of national heritage for a year at a time when sense of community is a heightened public need. However, holding a festival without the usual prize of an all-expense-paid trip to Eurovision removes some of the luster from the event. As a compromise, Estonia, Sweden, and Finland offered their displaced contestants a guaranteed spot in their respective competitions, though only Estonia's Sevište managed to win a second time. Disqualified. From May 2020 through March 2021, there were massive protests against the authoritarian government in Belarus. Several Eurovision alumni were among the participants, including Val, who were set to represent the country in 2020. At the same time, the country's main broadcaster and EBU member was drifting further into becoming state-controlled media, an EBU no-no. As a result, Belarus wasn't going to send VAL back to the contest. Instead, the delegation tried to send the group Galesti Zemesta and their song Ya nashu Tebya, which translates to I'll Teach You, a phrase favored by pro-government counter-protesters. The EBU rejected the entry on the basis that the song was too political in nature, but the rewrite provided on resubmission was even more pointed. Not only was Belarus disqualified from 2021's contest, their broadcaster's EBU membership has been suspended.
2: Withdrawal
0: in late 2020, Armenia and Azerbaijan were engaged in military conflict over the Nagorno-Karabakh region, also known as Artsakh. This conflict, along with political unrest within Armenia, forced the country to withdraw their participation.
1: Albania once again started the national final season with Festivali i e in December of 2020. Albania's winters tend to be milder given its location on the Balkan Peninsula, enabling FIK to be held outdoors. This presented a number of shifts in how the program was produced. All of the performances were pre-recorded to ensure proper protocols were followed during transitions, leading to a more tightly produced final product, a benefit since FIK tends to run long in normal times. This still left room for elements that are... Specific to Albania's style of production, such as interpretive dance routines set to both an Evanescence medley and Marilyn Manson's cover of Sweet Dreams Are Made of This. That happened. There was also a guest performance by the rock band Mixed Up Everything, four brothers from Melbourne who were on tour when Australia closed its borders, essentially leaving the group stranded in Albania. It was a different start to the Eurovision season, but FIK worked
0: and offered hope that maybe 2021 would be a better year. Lithuania had a slightly different awkward scenario. Their new contest format, Pabanda Misnaio, was incredibly successful in 2020, producing an entry that was on the list of favorites to possibly deliver them in a Eurovision win. Selecting the group internally would have been a reasonable decision, but what about the momentum of a successful program? Also, there weren't a ton of new program offerings to fill a six-week gap given how COVID impacted television production everywhere. To strike a balance, The Roop were given an automatic entry into the Pobondum final while the other contestants would have to go through the full process. Another enjoyable series was produced, but The Roop's discotheque won the contest hands down, receiving approximately 87% of the public televote. The series was in studio, with performances filmed on Tuesdays without an audience and the show airing on Saturdays. The only truly live element was the announcement of results, which was done with a voiceover and text on the screen. Pabano Michinalio has continued using this production format, though an audience has since been welcomed back in studio. France's 2020
1: artist, Tom Lieb, was one of the contestants that declined the invitation to return in 2021. Rather than do another internal selection, France opted to host a national final in January. This was an in-studio event featuring 12 acts a panel of 10 judges, two hosts, and an in-studio audience. That's a lot of people. There was plexiglass between each member of the jury, making them look like a row of bank tellers, and the audience was wearing masks, so that seemed safe-ish? As a viewer, that wasn't quite enough to quell anxiety. Also not quelling, an act would perform, receive their critiques, then exit the stage in reverse price is right fashion going into the audience unmasked high-fiving people as they ascend to the back row to cross over to the contestant seating area <sighs> to hear our full thoughts on this please check out episode 105 entitled ah! the winner was barbara Provi avec la chanson voila
0: italy took a less cavalier approach in producing the 71st festival de san remo As early as September of 2020, the festival's creative director Amadeus insisted that the competition would be held with an audience, as he could not imagine any other scenario. There was some hedging. The festival traditionally takes place the first week of February and was pushed back to the first week of March. The city of San Remo wanted to push it to April, but that would have thrown a wrench into Eurovision plans. Unfortunately, the surge of the Delta COVID variant in late 2020 led to an extension of limitations on indoor gatherings. This included venues such as San Remo's Ariston Theatre. The competition would still be permitted to happen with COVID protocols in place, but no audience would be allowed in the theater. Amadeus relented and allowed this plan B. Aside from the lack of audience, most of San Remo carried on as normal. The festival featured 26 acts and five nights of competition, including original songs, covers, and guest performers. An orchestra, wearing masks, accompanied the performances. One act, Arama, was forced to quarantine after a member of his entourage tested positive. Originally, that was going to mean disqualification, but the participants agreed to allow a rehearsal video stand-in. Irama finished in 5th, so perhaps live-to-tape backup performances could be a viable option for music competitions. The overall winner of San Remo was the four-piece
1: group Monoskin, known previously for finishing 2nd on X-Factor Italia. They finished the first phase of the festival in 15th place, but kept moving up the scoreboard throughout the week. Thanks mostly to strong televoting support. While Sanremo often includes rock music in the lineup, this is an unusual winner for Italy. The previous time a rock band won the festival was in 2016, and the time before that was a couple decades prior. Bass player Victoria De Angelis is also the first woman since pop singer Emma in 2014 to receive the Golden Lion. That's a long time, Italy. As Moniskin gave their winner's performance, members of the orchestra's string section could be seen standing up, waving their bows in the air to the thumping beat of the song Ziti Buomi. One more week of reveals and Sweden's Melfest finale, where Tusa's voices beat out the mamas in the middle, closed out the 2021 selection season. 39 countries will participate in Rotterdam, with 26 having representatives originally selected in 2020.
2: New engagement opportunities.
0: Fans had new opportunities to feel part of the contest from home in the lead up to Eurovision week. Pre-parties moved online, with participants sending in videos of performances similar to the home concerts from the year before. Not only did this provide new ways to engage with entries and the creative forces behind them, it allowed for new fan groups to organize events. An entirely new virtual event called the Adriatic Pre-Party was able to unite fans on social media to watch videos together, while established in-person pre-parties were also able to convert to an online format. The peculiarity of the twenty twenty one situation also invited a new type of fan engagement. Typically, an act selected in February would have about two to three months to build up a fan base around a song that already exists. For returning artists, that fan base lifespan has suddenly expanded by a year and could be leveraged in interesting ways.
1: Hi, my name is Tavre. I'm competing with Koknomagnet in Eurovision twenty twenty one. I'm almost finished with the song, but I need your help. Because I, I want there to be a, a like huge a cappella choir part in the song, but I don't have access to a choir right now, so I uh, need you to be in the choir.
0: Dothy Frere used the new rules around backing vocals to build an extended choir for his song 10 years. All he had to do was post an announcement video in January with instructions and wait for the submissions to roll in, with the final product debuting in March 2021. He also had time to develop a video game and went on a virtual tour with an augmented reality app allowing you to watch him perform 10 years from the comfort of your local pharmacy or, in my case, bookshelf. New artists for 2021 also took advantage of social media. Germany's 2021 representative, Jendrick, built up hype for his song, I Don't Feel Hate, via TikTok, walking through how he'd written the song and filmed the video while also convincing the German delegation... To be interested in him as an artist. Step 1. Have an idea on how to create a music video and then use all your free time to get 18 walking washing machines for said music video idea. Step 2. Post TikTok videos about sad music video idea with the following message Hello, I want to go to the Eurovision Song Contest. Please take me. And have just the tiny bit of hope that somebody important will see it. Step 3. Worry about the whole thing just being a waste of time and doubt yourself a lot. Step 4. Watch as one of your videos gets over 200k views and somebody <coughs> messages you. Hello, do you really want to go to the Eurovision Song Contest? Yes, I really do want to go to the Eurovision Song Contest. We didn't adjust the audio speed on that clip. He just talks that fast. Gendrick also revealed that he had sent in vocals for Dothi's choir, technically having a hand in two entries that year. In lieu of the usual live events that take place in the two-week lead-up to the contest, Rotterdam erected a digital Eurovillage online, recreating the mix of outdoor and club events that happen around the host city in a virtual space. It was a refreshing opening up of Eurovision spaces that made it so that you didn't have to be there in person to feel connected. It also allowed Rotterdam to show off the city, as tourism is a major component of why host cities bid for the opportunity. The COVID Bubble May has arrived, and delegations have descended
1: on Rotterdam for rehearsals. Following the March head of delegations meeting, a document was provided outlining the various COVID protocols that would be in play. All participants are encouraged to quarantine prior to their departure. A negative test will be required whenever entering the venue. Social distancing and masks will be required when indoors. Nothing too surprising. There is to be no mingling between delegations when outside of the Ahoy's Eurovision bubble, and everyone is required to stay in their hotel except for official activities. The press center also had major modifications. Typically, 1,500 seats are available for press from around the world to report on rehearsals, interview contestants, and stoke whatever controversies may arise. That capacity was reduced to 500 in-person seats. To adjust for the headcount reduction, the EBU implemented a digital press center, allowing those who either could not travel to the event or did not receive an in-person accreditation to stream rehearsals, participate in meet-and-greets and and press conferences, chat with other online press members, and arrange interviews with delegations. Online accreditation expanded access for fan media, as fledgling blogs and podcasts would generally not receive in-person accreditation over more established traditional media. The trade-off? Fan media based in Chicago started their day at 3 a.m. The first rehearsal featured Lithuania's The Roop and their entry Discotheque. The giddiness as I stared at my laptop in my dark living room waiting for the rehearsal stream to begin was indescribable. Let's discotheque right at my home. Yes, let's. It's official, I thought to myself. This is actually happening. They're actually pulling off Eurovision this year. Along with the press-specific content, Nikki DeJager, better known as beauty YouTuber Nikki Tutorials, contributed behind-the-scenes interviews and YouTube content in the two weeks leading up to the contest. As part of the main hosting team, she would also be adding some trans pride to the proceedings in gowns that highlighted the blue, pink, and white of the trans
0: flag over the three live shows. Rehearsals began on Saturday, May 8th. For the next week, each delegation would have two opportunities to access the stage. The first rehearsal is 30 minutes, followed by an informal meet-and-greet event hosted by one of the press center MCs. Questions would come in from both the online press center and reporters in person. It may have not been the initial intention, but the meet-and-greets tended to favor questions from the online press center. In other words, fan media. The second rehearsal would take place about three to four days after a delegation's first rehearsal. These rehearsals were about 20 minutes each, followed by a more formal press conference with additional members of the delegation participating. Traditional media outlets were in attendance, so in-person questions received more attention. Rehearsals wrapped on Saturday, May 15th. Eurovision Week would kick off with an opening ceremony on Sunday, May 16th, with all the fashion and awkward press moments similar to what you would see on the Grammys or the Oscars red carpet. The live televised semifinals happened the following Tuesday and Thursday, and the grand final is on Saturday. The day before each semifinal, there's an afternoon dress rehearsal without an audience, and an evening dress rehearsal with an audience that the participating juries base their scores on. There's another dress rehearsal the day of the televised semifinal, followed by the live show with televoting. Ten acts will advance from each semi, joining the Big Five and the host nation in the grand final. After each televised semifinal, there's a press conference with the ten qualifiers, and each act will draw which half of the grand final they'll perform in. In prior years, all 10 advancing acts would be crammed behind a long conference table in the press center to answer questions usually of the how-does-it-feel-to-qualify variety. For this contest, each act along with their delegation would be seated socially distanced from one another to answer some questions and draw their grand final placement. While this made the presser much longer, it did allow each qualifier to bask in the limelight before getting ready for Saturday's show. After the second semifinal press conference wraps, the producers huddle to determine the ultimate running order for the grand final. The grand final has the same general rehearsal schedule as the semifinals, though the show is much larger, with all 26 acts in the mix.
1: The audience protocol would also be much different for the 2021 contest compared to previous years. Although vaccines were becoming available, the rollout was slow. In the meantime, a Dutch organization called Field Lab was working with live events of various sizes and audience types to test the feasibility of conducting those events safely. Eurovision would be one of the largest test cases. For the test case, 3,500 audience members would be allowed at each of the nine ticketed shows. This was about a third of the planned capacity for Eurovision 2020, but a large enough audience for a televised arena show. Each audience member would need a negative COVID test to enter the venue. Once inside, social distancing and masking were optional. Part of Field Lab's study included identifying points of congregation in a venue, analyzing the venue's ventilation, and how droplets function in this setting. To test for droplets, beverages included a dye that could be examined, and participants were encouraged to sing along to songs. Not a problem at the contest. The seating areas were divided into different bubbles to compare results. Unfortunately, results of the experiment would not be available until well after the competition. The standard Eurovision fortnight schedule has been in place long before 2021. Surely the added layer of COVID protocols would allow things to run without a hitch?
2: Hitch number one. Australia's delegation would not be making the trip to Rotterdam.
0: Australia instituted strict zero-COVID policies in 2020, banning interstate travel and international visitors. There were still an estimated 40,000 Australians abroad in April 2021 who were unable to re-enter their country so an exception for Montaigne to travel to Europe for a couple weeks to sing a song was not in the cards. Montaigne was still treated as a participant during the scheduled press encounters, but it would be their live to tape performance that would air during the first semifinal. The performance was shown on a video screen in the arena, a setup which was also shown to the home audience. It is unclear if the song or the incongruous presentation was at fault, but Montaigne's Technicolor did not advance. So far, this is the only time Australia has not qualified for the grand final.
2: Hitch number two. Ukraine's lead singer has to go into quarantine.
1: Katerina Pavlenko, the lead singer of Ukraine's Volkronika band Goe, reported not feeling well and triggered COVID protocols. She was required to quarantine in her hotel room until she received a negative test result. Katerina was going to lose a day, and it was the day of Ukraine's second rehearsal. The rest of the band was cleared to rehearse, but stage blocking and other issues would be difficult to resolve without the singer present. Swapping time slots isn't an option, since the rehearsal is also used by the stage crew to figure out transitions. What can be done? Emmy Van Stein, a 24-year-old on her way to her job at Taco Bell, received a phone call. Would she be available to pop over to the hoy to sing Shum, a fast paced techno banger that's entirely in Ukrainian? Prior to the delegations arriving in Rotterdam, locals were recruited to be stand-ins for tech rehearsals. Emmy was a stand-in for Ukraine, and was probably the only other person in the Netherlands who knew Katarina's blocking and the lyrics. Katerina's test came back negative, and Emmy was invited to sit with the delegation in the green room during the
0: first semifinal.
2: Hitch number three. COVID infiltrates the delegations.
0: Although Katarina received good news, this was a stark reminder of the threat surrounding this contest. The rest of rehearsals completed without any other incidents of artists being sidelined while waiting for test results. The next big event was the opening ceremony at the Rotterdam Cruise Terminal. Still? Really, guys? As delegations walked down the turquoise carpet and spoke with interviews during the event livestream, the fan press were reporting on news that some delegations would not be in attendance. Members of the delegations from Poland and Iceland had tested positive. In an abundance of caution, the other members of those delegations skipped the event, as did the delegations of Romania and Malta who were staying in the same hotel. Romania and Malta were scheduled to compete in the first semifinal and were cleared to perform Monday and Tuesday. Poland was scheduled for the second semifinal and also received clearance. Iceland was not so lucky. Two of the members of band band, Gagnamagnid received positive test results. Theoretically, it would have been possible to reconfigure the staging. Instruments are not actually providing music during a performance, so it would be a change in choreography and blocking. Or, the remaining members make no changes and there are empty spots on stage, but then some moments will have less impact. Also, Dothy was on this two-year journey with his friends, and it might not feel right to perform if not everybody could be there on stage. The decision was made to withdraw from performing live and use footage from their second rehearsal as the backup performance. The implementation of this backup performance was more seamless than with Australia. The song Ten Years was also a favorite to potentially win the contest, so qualifying for the grand final was very likely. The song finished second in the semifinal, only three points behind Switzerland's entry.
1: The Grand Final. Saturday arrives, and the big show two years in the making is set to begin. The favorites to win coming out of the semifinal include Iceland, Switzerland, Malta, and Ukraine. However, France and Italy have also been at the top of the betting tables, and will have their own opportunities to shine in the running order. For the casual Eurovision viewer, there are only a few visual clues that this contest is not quite business as usual. First, the pit area near the stage is not packed with superfans waving flags. The floor of the arena doubled as the green room for delegations, each with their own pod. Mm, Correction, there were superfans on the floor, and it was the other contestants showing their support for each other while singing, dancing, and celebrating this incredible journey they have all shared. Second, the Parade of Nations opening the show had much more distance between each contestant announcement. This isn't a problem. Everyone deserves their place in the spotlight. However, when Iceland is announced... A press photo of Dothi and Gagnamodnith is displayed on one of the giant LED screens. During the show, we would see the group gathered in a hotel lounge, drinking tea, and watching the show. The quarantined members can be seen through iPads positioned as if they were sitting on the couch. Third, prior to each performance, a 45-second interstitial video known as a postcard plays. These take on different themes each year, such as the members of the upcoming act visiting a picturesque location in the host country and doing some sort of activity, usually involving some representation of their country's flag. The postcard theme this year featured the frame of an empty house placed near a Dutch landmark. The house would fill with props related to what the act was doing during lockdown, such as new hobbies or coping. The acts would then be CGI'd into the scene to smile at the camera. The postcards
0: usually aren't intended to be time capsules. 26 countries performed, delivering one of the strongest lineups in recent memory. Televoting lines opened and viewers in most of the 39 participating countries could call and text to support their favorites. Hi, San Marino. We know. Guest performances during the voting window included several pre-recorded segments of Eurovision alumni singing their notable Eurovision songs on rooftops across Rotterdam voting closes the program hopscotches to all of the participating countries juries to collect scores san marino receives the first 12 of the night and their first 12 ever from poland france and switzerland each receive top marks from eight juries at the end of the segment switzerland's to l'universe by jean steers is atop the leaderboard with france malta italy and iceland rounding out the top five at the bottom of the scoreboard the united kingdom represented with the song embers by james newman which received no points from any jury
1: now it's time for the televote. Rather than jump from nation to nation again, all of the televote points received by a country are given as an aggregated total, starting at the bottom of the scoreboard and working up. The UK is first to receive their televote.
2: And the United Kingdom gets from the public zero points.
1: The current scoring system, which splits the jury and televote into separate pools of points, was implemented in 2016 to try to prevent the dreaded nil point. James took the news of a double nil in stride, but yikes. Germany received their televote next.
2: Germany has received from the public... zero points. Spain? Another zero points
1: netherlands
2: zero points
1: absolute scenes norway was next
2: norway the public has given you 60 points
1: okay we're off to the races this part of the sequence moves at a pretty swift clip slowing down once the scoring gets to the last few countries who knew math could be so tense ukraine finished second in the televote bumping Shum to fifth place overall Iceland finished 5th with both the jury and the televote, but the combined score allowed Dothi and company to slip into 4th place, all from their hotel. Switzerland finished 6th with viewers, falling from 1st to 3rd place. France was able to hold on to 2nd place, but it was Måneskin's 1st place showing in the televote that allowed the band to rocket to the top of the scoreboard, giving Italy its 1st victory since 1990. A week after the contest ended, the official Eurovision YouTube channel aired a two-part special showcasing the live-on-tape performances recorded by each nation, giving fans a peek behind the curtain at the backup measures taken to ensure the contest would be back. All participating nations were given the option of sharing their video. A few declined, choosing to leave the live performance as the only version of their entry. The specials acted as a nice one-off reminder of how the contest could be run in the face of any other
0: catastrophe. Looking back at the Back for Good rubric, Rotterdam landed somewhere between scenarios B and C. The show was mostly live with COVID protocols in place, an audience was present, but some delegations did need to use backup performances. The rubric was still front of mind in planning for Eurovision 2022 in Torino, Italy. As for the results from the field
1: lab study, they were quite promising. Across the nine ticketed shows, each with an audience of approximately 3,500 people, there were only 50 COVID cases reported. Granted, no one should have to be at risk of anything when attending live performances, but Eurovision 2021 did not become a super spreader event. Still, precautions would factor into planning the following year's contest.
0: Officially, 2022 was scenario B. Audience capacity still wasn't 100%, but protocol enforcement was lax. To be fair, many of the restrictions that were in place in 2021 had been lifted, such as Australians being allowed to travel again. Also, vaccines had been available for about a year. Backup performances are still part of the package, but none were used, and many weren't shared after the 2022 contest. For the 2023 contest... Things were closer to Scenario A across Liverpool and in the BBC arena. It's hard to say everything is completely back to normal, though, as the contest has been establishing a new normal for post-contest global outreach since 2019. Eurovision Around
1: the World For example, Eurovision has started to have a presence again on the Hot 100. Almost two years after it won in Tel Aviv, Duncan Lawrence's winning song, Arcade, started charting in the United States. Use of the song by French Harry Potter fans on TikTok helped the song get picked up by other short-form memes, boosting its profile on Spotify charts and drawing the attention of American radio programmers. This made Arcade the first Eurovision entry to chart in the US in 25 years, peaking at number 30 in September 2021. Moniskin's winning song, Ziti Buoni, didn't crack the US charts, but their X-Factor cover of the four seasons, Began, started to go viral in 2021, viewing at 76 on the Hot 100 in July, and ultimately peaking at number 13. The band made several appearances on the late-night talk show circuit, multiple award shows, and even Saturday Night Live. Måneskin announced Grammy nominees in 2022, and the quartet was nominated for Best New Artist at this year's Grammy Awards. The winners of the contest aren't the only ones showing up on the Hot 100, though it only placed 20th overall for Armenia in 2022. A sped-up version of Rosalind's Snap started going viral on TikTok a few months after the contest and eventually got picked up by radio. The song is the second Eurovision entry of the 21st century to hit the Hot 100, peaking at 67. Rosalyn is supporting Ed Sheeran and Young the Giant on tours across the US this summer.
0: The day before the first semifinal in 2021, NBC's Peacock streaming service announced it would be airing all three shows live and commercial-free. This made it easier than ever to watch live, without needing to remember which broadcasters make their stream available or if you'll need a VPN to tune in. Peacock improved its coverage in 2022, adding Johnny Weir as a commentator to the proceedings. Appearing picture-in-picture from Los Angeles, Weir was a perfect choice as someone who gets what the contest is all about, filling new viewers in on all the background of the participants while also radiating excitement between acts about what we had just seen. If showing up for the final isn't enough for you, continued improvements in how live streaming of television content works means that most participating nations' selection processes are streamable either through their official website, YouTube, or apps on Roku, Apple TV, and other streaming boxes. International broadcasters seem to be aware of this too. This year's Pabano Mishnagyo took a brief break from its Lithuanian opening to say hello to all the international viewers watching. Most importantly, going deep on a Eurovision artist is no longer limited to picking up the official soundtrack for each year when it's released in April. Spotify and other streaming services have made it easier to dive into established Act's back catalogs. Whether you want more Finnish party rap, Icelandic anti-capitalist techno, or thanks to Eurovision again, 1960s Croatian neo-madrigal? It's all there for further discovery.
1: The Eurovision format has been licensed to other markets, but it remains to be seen if it can succeed. NBC tried launching the American Song Contest in March 2022, but American audiences largely tuned out after the first week. The right team seemed involved behind the scenes, including Christa Bjorkman, a Swedish Eurovision alumnus who produced two Eurovision Song Contests and Melody Festivalen for almost 20 years. With 50 states, Washington, D.C., and five territories competing, an extended process made sense, but there was not much momentum carrying over week to week for eight weeks. Another stab at an American version of the show is currently being shopped around after NBC's cancellation, and other editions are in stages of development in Canada and India. The contest seemed to acknowledge this wider reach with the introduction of the rest of the world televote, swinging the decision of the final winner a little bit more in favor of the televote, and giving Euro fans in non participating countries the chance to join the chorus of deciding who will win. The pandemic may have put Eurovision on pause, but the fan community helped the contest open up to new possibilities in digital spaces. By taking a pragmatic approach in producing the event, Eurovision opened up the possibility of attending live music performance in a post-pandemic world. With the goal of opening up to a worldwide audience, a niche fandom is ready to grow. Come on
0: in. The big tent is open. Hashtag join us. That's going to do it for this episode of the What. Thanks for listening. The What podcast is hosted by Ben Smith, that's me, and Mike McComb.
1: That's me. Special thanks to Ryan Brazell, Ned Raggett, Rob Holly, and the Eurostream team, and all of our listeners for getting us to this milestone.
0: You can find show notes, our socials, and all 200 of our episodes going all the way back to the 2018 contest on our website at Eurowhat.com.
1: Next time on the What, we finish our coverage of this year's runner-up by chatting with researcher Zoe J
0: and delegation member Maddie Muluaho.